2009, October 30. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 26, The Deserts of Mars. All right, so we've looked through the solar system. We've looked at the, the denizens of the solar system, the places to stand, the places to swim, the places for organics, the places for sunlight, the places for energy. We've got an idea of what we should be looking for to look for life in the solar system. And one of the first places that pops out on everyone's list of where there might be life elsewhere in the solar system is Mars. Even if you didn't know anything about the requirements for life or the properties of the planets, if you ask anybody, where do you think there'd be life elsewhere in the solar system, they say, ooh, ooh, Mars. Now maybe they're thinking Marvin the Martian. I always think Marvin the Martian, but maybe they're really thinking that Mars has always been really fixed in our, in our consciousness as a probable place where life might be. And today I want to look not at the popular culture aspect of life on Mars, but look at the properties of Mars and see if there's any hope of finding life there. We'll discuss the issue of past life or even present life on Mars and how we would go about actually finding it on Monday's lecture. So today's lecture is primarily going to focus on the properties of the desert planet Mars. Simple fact is, Mars is the fourth planet from the Sun. It's about a half the size of the Earth. So already it's a, it's a good terrestrial planet, a nice solid place to stand. However, it has a very dry, very thin carbon dioxide atmosphere, and it has polar caps of water ice and carbon dioxide ice. So we already know it's a cold place because dry ice forms naturally as part of the weather, up at least up at the poles. The surface of Mars today is dry and cold. It's basically a desert. In fact, it's the most perfect desert we've ever found anywhere in the inner solar system. And it has extinct volcanoes around. So there may have been volcanism in the past, but there is not now in the present age. However, if we look carefully at the terrain of Mars, and Mars's terrain has been mapped in exquisite detail by a series of orbiting spacecraft, we find lots of evidence of past water flows, both in the forms of catastrophic floods but also we find evidence now, and this has been sought for a long time, and only in the last few years have we found very clear evidence of steady state flows. A flood is like a dam breaking. A steady state flow is like a river. That's the way to think about the difference between the two. We see these marked in the terrain, but they're dry. They're empty beds for these old flows. And we certainly have found, again, in recent years, using a series of instruments carried on spacecraft, we have now begun to detect substantial amounts of subsurface ice deposits. And in fact, when I say ice, I do mean water ice. A little, man, a little room on that line there. So this, a lot of evidence is starting to accumulate that there's a significant amount of water on Mars, but it's all frozen. And if we look back in the climate history of Mars, and we're only going to touch on this today, and we're going to go a little bit more into this, perhaps on, on Monday, when we talk about the possibility of life on Mars and how to look, but the evidence is starting to turn now that certainly during the first billion years or so of Mars's history, it was a very different world than we see today. It was not maybe a dry, sear desert, but in fact it was warm and moist, warm and wet. And it actually had liquid water, and that raises the possibility of whether there may have been life in Mars's distant past. Now, we've seen this plot before, and we're going to see it a lot. We're going to see it a few more times at least. Again, on the, vertical, on the horizontal axis, we plot the distance from the sun in astronomical units. And on the vertical axis, we plot the mass of the body in units of the mass of the Earth. Now, remember the last couple days, we talked about the issues for habitability, especially yesterday. And we pointed out that if a planet is too small in mass, its gravity is too weak to hold on to gravity. It gets, it, too weak to hold on to gravity. <laughs> too weak to hold on to an atmosphere. It can, however 
hold on to an atmosphere better if it's small, if that atmosphere is very cold. So this line is a nice diagonal line. The further you get from the sun, the colder it gets because you're further from the warmth of the sunlight. Colder means slower moving molecules. Slower moving molecules means a weaker gravity field can hang on to an atmosphere made of those slow moving molecules. So if you're below this gray line and below in the shaded region to small mass objects, you're too small to have held on to an atmosphere for very long at all. Either you're too hot and too, too, too hot or too cold and a combination of small size. Nothing works. The top gray band is if you get too big of a mass and you can hang on to too big of an atmosphere. You get a hot, heavy hydrogen helium atmosphere and then you get into planets with extreme pressures. You lose your solid surfaces below basically these gigantic gas layers. So not surprisingly, that's where the gas giants Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune live. In the too small region, we see things like the moon, all the asteroids, and everything else. So this band of sort of habitability with respect to atmosphere is this white band that runs diagonally across the diagram. And we find in that band Venus, Earth, and Mars, Titan, and maybe Pluto, Eris, and Triton, and a couple of the moons of Jupiter land in that white band or right on the borderline. Now, the borderline is fuzzy, so don't worry too much about an object being close to it. The other aspect of a planetary habitability is the size of the planet. If a planet is small, it cools off very rapidly. If a planet is big, it takes a very, very long time for its interior to cool off. Having a molten interior gives you plate tectonics if you're a solid planet. It also gives you, with plate tectonics, you can get into a carbon dioxide cycle. You can get into a water cycle and things like that, like on Earth. Plate tectonics, tectonism drives a lot of the climate of the Earth. If, on the other hand, you're also too small, your interior solidifies, you don't have a magnetic field anymore. You shut down those convection currents in the deep interior that generate the magnetic field. And the magnetic field acts like a kind of magnetic force field that protects the atmosphere from being blown away by the solar wind. In the present day, with the solar system about four and a half billion years old, that too cold of interior line is about right there. And as time goes on, that line is going to go slowly but surely up the path. Somewhere around two billion years from now, the Earth and Venus will probably reach the point that they will cool off inside. I, I don't know exactly when that's going to occur. Mars is just hanging out on the other side of that line. Finally, if you ask where you are from the sun sets the amount of solar radiation, you also get a little bit of enhancement from greenhouse effect if you can hang on to an atmosphere. So you can ask, where is water going to be liquid? It turns out to be a very, very narrow band around the position of the Earth and Venus and Mars. So this allowed region for where today we expect conditions to be conducive to holding on to an atmosphere, not too big or not too small, having a warm interior so you still have at least something resembling a magnetic field or at least can hang on to a nice atmosphere, and where you expect conditions should be conducive to holding on to liquid water, having liquid water on your surface, it's in this little blue box. The Earth quite nicely lives right in the middle of that box. That's a good thing. Venus is inside the box, but Venus has undergone a runaway greenhouse effect over the last few billion years and has basically destroyed all of its water by being too hot, by overheating. Mars, again, lies right on the borderline in this region. Go back a little bit in time, lower this line for the interior, and Mars will actually fall into the border of that blue box. So Mars becomes a place we want to look at as a possibility for life, if not in the present day necessarily, perhaps in the distant past. So we need to take a close look at Mars and its properties and try to understand whether that's actually plausible or not.
So let's start out with just the basic comparison of the planets. Here is a scale shown of, of the Earth and Mars next to each other in their proper proportions. Mars has about half the radius of the Earth and about one-tenth, one-ninth the mass. So it's got a lot smaller radius, so it's going to cool off very rapidly. It's going to cool off roughly two times faster. In fact, it's a little bit faster still because the Earth, remember, is kept warm longer in its interior by radioactive decay. The amount of radioactive decay you get is proportional to your mass, and Mars only has one-ninth the available radioactive heating sources compared to that of the Earth. So in fact, the proportion of the cooling times are actually bigger than you would simply get from the simple cooling relation we talked about earlier. So we expect Mars, remember I said yesterday, the sort of that boundary line between if you're below 50% the radius of the Earth or above 50%, I'm sorry, the mass of the Earth, you expect to be still molten inside today. Mars is one-ninth the mass of the Earth, 10.7% you know, the mass of the Earth. So it's very definitely in that regime where we expect Mars to be essentially solidified through all the way to its core. Now, Mars has excited a lot of interest over the, over the centuries. It certainly appears, its appearance in the sky, if you see Mars, especially when it's close to opposition, when it's brightest in the sky, it's blood red. So not surprisingly, in nearly every culture that has such a person, it has always been associated with the god of war, being blood red in its color. Telescopic observations, once the telescope started to become of sufficient quality, you could actually begin to see surface features on Mars, you saw that Mars's surface was not featureless, but in fact had dark and light features. It was also observed very early on that sometimes the configuration of those dark and light features would change seasonably. So for example, Mars has bright poles of ices which grow in the winter and shrink in the summer with the seasons. Mars's orbit, Mars's axis is tilted by 25 degrees relative to the plane of its orbit. And so it goes through seasons just like the Earth goes through seasons because of its tilted orbit. Sometimes Mars would actually, you'd see these dark and light regions appear to grow and shrink, but the telescopes were not quite good enough. Your view looked kind of what it was like on the left. A group of astronomers in the 19th century staring at Mars intently through their telescopes began to imagine that in this patterning of light and dark, so here's this picture of Mars here in the same configuration. Here's this large round region here is called the Halos Basin. You see all these structures reproduced, began to think they could see straight lines on Mars. And they began to imagine that the changing patterns of, of dark regions and light regions was basically the advance and retreat of, of vegetation growing on a near-desert world during the course of the seasons, following the retreat and advance of the poles during the winter to summer transition of seasons. They also thought that perhaps Mars, this gave them the feeling that Mars was actually inhabited, and inhabited by intelligent beings, perhaps like ourselves, and living on this nearly dying desert world were beginning to dig canals for themselves and actually moving water around. This was an idea which really stuck in people's heads for a long time. In fact, Percival Lowell, who founded the Lowell Observatory in Arizona, dedicated his life to mapping out these canals, canale as they're called. Canale was given the name by an Italian um, astronomer who knew something about Venice, but Lowell was the one who really in the United States popularizes. Luckily for Lowell, he actually seemed to be a pretty skilled astronomer and built a very good scientific observatory that's famous even to this day, especially for planetary studies. There's been a long mystery of what exactly were they seeing, because not everyone saw them. Turns out one of the theories, which actually works pretty good for what they're seeing, is if you stare intently at a really bright source for a long time and then you look away quickly, 
One of the things you see on your eye is an after-reflection of the back of your eyeball, which has threaded with veins. So in fact, very likely, what Lowell and the others were seeing is they were staring so intently at Mars, what they were actually seeing was a reflection of the inside of their own eyeball against the bright disk of Mars. Well, be that as it may, when we actually, this idea that there were canale, that there was vegetation on Mars, that there was seasonal plant life on Mars, even if people didn't buy the whole idea of intelligent beings, stuck in the public consciousness until 1960s. In the 1960s, we sent the very first spacecraft by Mars, Mariner 4. It just flew past, it carried a very primitive video camera with it, and the first thing that became obvious is Mars was a desert planet full of craters. This is a beautiful picture. It's actually a composite based on a series of orbiter images. It's looking roughly towards that Hellas Basin region that we just saw. It's slightly tilted. So you can see the tilt here. Here's one of the poles. This is the south pole of Mars, and there's that Hellas Basin we saw, and that dark region that was in that previous sketch. This is Mars as it actually appears. It is a dry, cold desert. The reddish color you see happens to be due to the fact that any oxygen in this atmosphere was grabbed up by mineral iron and formed iron oxide and therefore gets a rusty color. That's where its color comes from. Just like on the Earth, the first oxygen that was produced, for example, by plant life got grabbed up by any available minerals. And there's other ways to make oxygen as well, from photolysis of, for example, ultraviolet radiation breaking apart water into hydrogen and oxygen. The oxygen immediately grabs onto any mineral sinks. These dark regions are simply darker terrains, and the light regions are simply lighter terrains. Now, we've studied this planet intently. Mars is probably the most studied planet in the solar system beyond the Earth and Venus. Venus has been a particular preserve, in fact, of the, of the former Soviet Union and now Russia. For whatever reason, the Russians never had a whole lot of success getting spacecraft to Mars, but they did a marvelous job of getting spacecraft to Venus. Whereas it really has been the United States has really almost sort of owned Mars as far as exploration is concerned, but the Europeans are now getting into the game with, with, with their European space organization and now sent probes there. The Russians have sent a couple probes, but they just have terrible luck for some reason. For example, Mariner 4 was the first flyby spacecraft. A big event, certainly when I was in, in high school, in 1976, the two Viking landers made a, a successful soft landing on the planet. The Soviets had sent a lander as well, but unfortunately it piled it in to the surface. Uh, the Viking landers landed successfully and began the first real up-close study of the planet Mars. And then through, the, especially the 1980s, but definitely into the 90s and into the current decade, Mars has been a subject of intensive study by NASA. They've lofted advanced global surveyor spacecraft, the first of the robotic rovers, the Sojourner rover, working out of what was renamed the Carl Sagan station, which was the lander that brought it down to the surface, did the first real detailed geological assay in which the robotic rover allowed scientists on Earth to travel to interesting looking things. Of course, these have been replaced by these two absolutely marvelous devices, the Mars Explorer rovers known as Spirit and Opportunity, that landed on opposite sides of the planet down around the equatorial stripe. These things were only rated to work for about three to four months. They've been in operation for years. They're absolutely remarkable devices. They're still going. They're getting a little gimpy and got arthritis in some of their bearings, but they're still going strong. Mars is a tough place to work, and they're totally solar-powered. It's, they're amazing. The Europeans have gotten into game with the Mars Express orbiter. There's the Mars Reconnaissance orbiter, which has been up for a long time. There's now radar mappers. There's a whole next generation of spacecraft. I haven't even put on here the Phoenix lander, which in the last couple of years went up to the northern pole of, of Mars. 
We're really concentrating a lot on Mars because of this possibility that Mars is a possible place for life. It's, it's an obvious next place to go in the solar system. But what is the place we're trying to study? What is the place we want to go? Well, first of all, let's take a look at the atmosphere. We know we're sitting on a desert planet. It's pretty much just got a solid surface everywhere we look, no liquid water. The atmosphere of Mars itself is extremely dry and extremely thin, and it's composed mostly of carbon dioxide. In fact, the specific components of the Martian atmosphere are 95% carbon dioxide, a little under 3% nitrogen, and 1.6% argon, with only the very faintest tracers of water vapor. This atmosphere could look no different as possible than, than the, the atmosphere of the Earth, which is mostly a nitrogen-oxygen atmosphere. There also isn't a whole lot of the atmosphere. It's only seven thousandths of an Earth's atmosphere down at the surface, which is like being up on the Earth at an altitude of 30 kilometers off the ground. So we could not breathe on Mars, and there wouldn't be anything to breathe because there isn't any oxygen anywhere. It's all the oxygen is in the form of carbon dioxide, which is not terribly useful to us. So we would freeze and asphyxiate almost immediately on removing a spacesuit. You can see the atmosphere here on its edge because of suspended dust particles. Mars may not seem like much of an atmosphere, but it's enough to actually have weather patterns. And there's substantial amounts of weather going on on the surface of Mars. The weather on Mars can be described as kind of boring. It does do seasonal variation between summer and winter. But the basic Mars forecast would be breezy and cold with occasional high, thin clouds and maybe some morning fog and frost in the wintertime. The daytime temperatures are about 244 degrees Kelvin for a high, a summertime high at the most, of minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's a very, very cold place. At nighttime, the temperatures can dip down to about 187 degrees Kelvin or 123 degrees Fahrenheit below zero. So that's basically really cold. At minus 123 degrees Fahrenheit, carbon dioxide begins to precipitate out of the atmosphere as, car as dry ice. So this is a pretty strange place. Surface winds, there is enough of an atmosphere to actually have solar-driven surface winds. The typical wind speeds are pretty slow, about 17 kilometers per hour, 11 miles an hour if you wish, with gusts up to about 30 kilometers an hour. So high enough to begin to pick up dust particles and actually kick up uh, windstorms. Some of these seasonal winds are driven by the fact that there's carbon dioxide dry ice up at the poles. As the poles begin to melt in the, uh, in the summertime, the low pressure on Mars is such that water ice and carbon dioxide ice do not melt into liquid, they sublimate directly into gas. As you begin to dump more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, you get these sort of north-south flows. If you're melting the north, if you're sublimating the north poles and freezing the south flows, so you get these sublimation flows, these condensation flows going on through the seasons. Sometimes these flows can kick up really big dust storms. You pick up some of the fine dust that covers the planet, and you can obscure entire regions of the planet, and sometimes the dust storms get so big, there's such a combination of factors, that all the dust storms get together and can completely wrap the entire planet in dust and obscure the surface. This happened during Mariner 9, for, I think it was Mariner 9, for example, which was another flyby spacecraft. They were all proud of it. I remember, wa I remember waiting to see the results from it, because you know, Mariner 4 and Mariner 7 had these really crappy video cameras. and Everyone was real excited about Mariner 9 because it had this really great video camera on it and a really good high bandwidth transmitter. And it arrived at Mars, it was only going to spend a few days, and the planet was completely covered in a dust storm and you couldn't see squat. It still happens, still happens every now and then. Here's a pair of pictures taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. Putting a space telescope, a telescope in space like Hubble 
is a marvelous tool for being able to look at planets because it really does provide a clear enough picture. You can see the bigger craters, for example, from Hubble. So here's a picture taken in June of 2001. Um, some of this stuff up here is high clouds. It's southern winter, so you see the southern polar cap's fairly big. The northern polar cap has virtually vanished, and what you're seeing is kind of high, thin clouds around the poles, a little, little cloud around the equator there. And then just two and a half months later, boom! You can barely see anything. There's the south polar cap and a little bit of cloud up at the north, but the entire planet is covered by a massive dust storm. And this happens every few years. So it's part of the weather system on Mars. Mars's weather and Mars's weathering is almost entirely what meteorologists and geologists like to call aeolian processes, meaning basically wind-driven erosion. You're blowing stuff around the planet. The poles are really interesting. The northern and southern poles are capped by deposits of a combination of primarily water, ice, and carbon dioxide. You've got to beware old astronomy textbooks. They used to say that the poles were pure dry ice, but it's very clear that in fact they're mostly water ice, not dry ice. The North Pole and South Pole are, are, are shown here on left and right. It's really not complete caps, as we're used to seeing. These are shown as sort of an intermediate phase. You can see there's places where the, the ices are beginning to sublimate back out into the atmosphere, and then there's dust mixed in with everything. Close-up images actually show layerings of dust and ice, dust and ice, that have been deposited year after year, century after century. Now, this is actually not in your notes for those of you who printed it out. I just found it this morning. This is an amazing picture. I had not seen this one before. I don't know why, because it's been around for about four years. This is a picture of the South Pole of Mars taken in May of, of, of 2005 during the southern spring, where the South Pole is just beginning to melt. By the time of southern summer, which is in November of the year, you can see how much the South Pole has retreated. These are very different from the poles that we expect on the Earth. On the Earth, we're talking about you know, kilometers thick of ice that are forming at the South Pole, less thick, for example, at the North Pole. But we see a tremendous amount of change in the ice cap coverage between winter and summer. So this is one of the things that's different about Mars and what helps driving its weather, is you have these immense sinks and then alternately sources of gases up at the poles, carbon dioxide primarily, as you begin to condense carbon dioxide on the winter pole, you're sublimating carbon dioxide at the top, and this leads to these planet covering north to south or south to north seasonal winds. So the poles grow in, the poles grow in the winter and shrink in the summer with the changes of the seasons. So we, we can see these very directly. And a lot of the seasonal changes that people saw in the, in the 18th and 19th centuries through their telescope were due to a combination of the retreat in advance of the poles with winter and summer, and then the changing patterns that they thought were the advance and retreat of vegetation was simply the appearance or disappearance of the background darker features behind dust storms covering the planet. So they couldn't see in enough detail that they were actually seeing obscuration in the atmosphere, not movement of vegetation with the seasons. We look in detail at the interior of Mars, and a lot of this idea is still somewhat notional. We've got only a very little bit of seismic data on Mars, Clearly one of the future plans, and we're talking many decades hence, the idea would be to actually put seismic stations down on the planet Mars and use Mars quakes to probe the interior in detail. But people can come up with models for what it probably should look like, and it looks something like this. We expect by the present day, because of the small size and small mass of Mars, that its mantle is pretty much completely solidified, probably solidified completely within the last few hundred million years, is the best estimates based on the 
extinct volcanoes and their approximate ages. This would have shut down both tectonic activity, which on a small planet like this was a single plate tectonism, so mostly vertical and vertical tectonism, and certainly would shut down any magnetic fields. And indeed, Mars has very, very little magnetic field to this day. It has a very thick, very cool, very rigid crust. We don't see a lot of Mars quakes, for example. So we have two types of crust on the planet Mars. We have a primary crust, which is shaped by impacts over the last few billion years of the solar system's history. And then we have a secondary crust, which is much younger, which has been shaped by volcanism. Back in the day, when Mars was still molten in its interior, volcanoes repaved sections of the Martian surface. And we see this particularly in places where old impact craters have been erased by subsequent volcanism. So we can use the impact cratering details on the surface to give us at least a first approximation handle on the age of a terrain. A really ancient terrain is going to be heavily cratered because those craters will not have been filled in by lava flows or other forces, say liquid erosion in a distant past or, or wind erosion, compared to more young terrain where we completely fill in the craters. And that's a way of doing relative age dating of terrains. And we do this a lot in the outer solar system where we don't have access to the rock and can't do the direct radioactive age dating like we can on Earth. And we do this by analogy to the moon where we have been able to do that with returned lunar samples. So if we, map, if we unwrap Mars' map and we flatten it out, and then we use, in this case, it's a, a, one of the Mars missions can, c carried with it an orbiting laser altimeter which scanned over the planet and got very detailed measurements of the altitudes of various features and made this terrain map. So this is a terrain relief map. The way to read this map is red and white are the highest terrain and blue to black is the lowest terrain. So we see the southern portion of the planet on the bottom half of the picture and the northern half of the, of the picture is the northern, top, top part of the picture is the northern hemisphere of the planet unwrapped. And the only thing missing is we kind of clipped out the poles here because the projection gets kind of funky looking. So what you see is that the terrain of Mars is very clearly delineated into the southern hemisphere is very old, very heavily cratered terrain. In fact, you can see one very large impact crater really smack the surface here. This is the Hellas Basin. It's a very low depression basin, probably itself also a gigantic asteroidal impact basin. As we go up into the equatorial region, we start seeing raised regions, some of which have these very distinctive conical shapes. These, in fact, are places for hotspot volcanism. They've raised up a gigantic bulge underneath the surface of the planet where magmas welled up and begun to fill up a, a highland plain. But you'll notice the relative, almost complete lack of craters here. So we can tell right away this is very young terrain, which was shaped secondary crust. It's secondary tectonism coming up. And we can, in fact, see the volcanoes left behind. This particular region over here is fairly famous. This is the so-called Tharsis Bulge. The northern hemisphere, however, is very interesting. It's very much lowlands. It's much lower altitude on average compared to the shape of the planet. Not quite as low as the Halos Basin. But also notice the relative lack of impact craters. There's a few, and they're big but it really stands out. It's very, very distinctive in the north. But this is a very lowlands area, very low-lying, few impact craters, lots of other interesting stuff going on, intermediate age stuff, and then finally this really, really old terrain, which is not much affected by weathering and other things over history, and therefore very heavily cratered. The surface is not as heavily cratered as Mercury or the moon, which is telling us that there was at least some volcanic activity probably in the first billion years or so that was repaving it, but after that billion years was over, any subsequent pummeling by asteroidal impacts has remained for the last three billion years to the present day.
So we go down on the surface, and, and some of the views of Mars, I, I can't even begin to show you some of the, the pictures from Mars that we're getting now are of such resolution and such quality that it's, we almost feel like it's a familiar place now, having looked at these pictures. This is taken from the cameras on board the Spirit rover looking out over the plains of Gusev Crater. Gusev is one of these very, very large equatorial craters that was the target, pointing target for the Spirit rover. One of the reasons why you wanted to go into the craters is because the crater impact would have torn up down through the crust and you'd have access to some of the older rock layers when you go around and do the analysis. What the, what the um, rovers are is are essentially they're portable geology machines. They're not, they're not looking for life. They don't have chemical analyzers that can look for the chemistry of life. They're basically geological systems. They're looking for the mineral evidence of wa liquid water processes. That was their main goal. This is an amazing place. This looks a lot like, except for the red color, parts of the desert that I grew up in. But the big difference is there's nothing living here. There's no plant life. There's nothing. It's about as dead a desert as you could possibly see. It reminds me a lot of fields that had been paved flat by volcanoes, say, back in the Pleistocene era that were up near where I grew up, that were just like this, but, you know, sort of mentally erased the plants. And that's not an entirely crazy picture in your head because Mars was once a fairly volcanically active place. One of those volcanoes in particular stands out as the tallest volcano in the entire solar system in proportion to its planet. It's called Olympus Mons. The, the term Mons that you see, basically in, in Latin it means mount. Mons is almost always given for a single mountain in Latin name or usually applied to a volcano, perhaps, or something that looks volcano-like, sort of the, the classical you know, cartoon picture of a mountain is kind of a peak thing. Olympus, of course, for Mount Olympus, the, the home of the gods. It's up in the, pla in the Tharsis Plateau, that very young, raised, volcanic, upwelling region that we see up in the, in the Martian northern equatorial region. It turns out to be one gigantic big shield volcano. There's a magma hotspot that was formed underneath, this area in the crust, lava welled up, and it just simply piled up in place. Because there was no lateral tectonic motion, it basically did not create a chain of volcanoes. There's a magma upwelling, a hot spot underneath the, the Hawaiian Islands. But the Hawaiian Islands are on the Pacific Plate, which has been kind of rolling northward with all the plates, lateral plate tectonics of the Earth. So the Mauna Kea, while it's 4,000 meters above sea level, would not grow any bigger because it's moved off the hotspot. The hotspot's now under low E. But imagine that there was no plate tectonics on the Earth. The Hawaiian Island hotspot would be a gigantic shield volcano filling up a big spot in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. In this particular case, this particular volcano is 24 kilometers high above the surrounding plains, which themselves are already a high-altitude portion of Mars. At the base, it's 600 kilometers across, and nearly a kilometer high cliffs on the outer edge. We can look at the terrain here and see that, in fact, there's very few craters, but there are, in fact, one or two impact craters on the surface of this volcano. We can look at the cratering rate, and the estimate based on the cratering on top of it, which would only occur in the newest material, the old craters have been paved over, is it probably last had an eruption of flowing lava about 300 million years ago. So that's our best estimate for when Mars finally got around to doing its last gasp of solidification. So the last gasp of volcanism was more than 300 million years ago on the planet, a little bit after the time that land life started really getting going here on the Earth. So Mars has been geologically dead for a very, very long time. The other place where we see evidence of earlier tectonism on the surface of, of Mars is in the very large 
um, number of valleys and channels that are cut through the surface. Some of these channels, well, the biggest valley of all is the Valles Marineris. It's a vast canyon or rift valley. You can get an idea for the size of this thing in proportion to the size of the planet from this beautiful photomontage taken from orbit. The canyon is 4,000 kilometers long, varies between 2 and 7 kilometers deep, and can be up to 600 kilometers wide at its widest portion. Now, this is often called the Grand Canyon of Mars. In fact, it's probably the grandest canyon of the entire solar system, but there's one major difference. The Grand Canyon was carved over the eons by the action of the Colorado River, eroding away the landscape of Arizona, northern Arizona. The Valles Marineris is a rift valley. It's formed by the crust actually pulling apart as the planet shrinks, as it cools. Just like when you get something that's, that's fairly big and solid, as uh, liquid, as it begins to cool, it actually begins to shrink. The crust is brittle, and in some places, the crust simply begins to pull apart. It's called crustal pulling. So there's no water erosion going on here. This is a classic rift valley. You're also not seeing seafloor spreading or anything like that. It's just simply where the place cracked open. But this is a sign of the kind of dead geology. This is a very, very ancient feature. There have been no water features in this for a very, very long time. But we do see evidences of actual flows, places where some kind of liquid material, probably water, has flowed across the surface and done the kinds of erosion and scouring that we see in very similar erosion features on the Earth. Here's a particular place. This is called the Rave Vallis. This is showing the direction of flow here, you can see. Here's where the head of the flow is, and then you can see where it's all a lot of jumbled terrain. It's very sharp here, and then everything seems to be kind of flowing away before, maybe a little pooling and meandering there. What this looks like is nothing so much as what's often referred to as the um, Scablands out in the western Montana and the western United States. It's a place where a gigantic glacier lake let loose, and there was a sudden massive flood of water out around the, 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 the uh, countryside, leaving tremendous geological scouring marks and then long-term sort of downstream flooding. You can go into various places of the Ravi Vallis. For example, you can see an impact crater there. tells us that this flow happened before those impact craters appeared. Those impact craters are on top of the new terrain. There's even other places in these flows where you can see the flows going around older craters. And so we can get an approximate feel for what, when this occurred. We don't know what caused this. One of the ideas is perhaps a bit of, of latent, latent volcanism. Maybe there was, in fact, a buildup of water ice in here, and a bit of volcanism melted the water ice, produced something like a glacial lake, and then the dam sort of burst, and in one massive event, maybe lasting a few weeks, scoured this region out. So this kind of catastrophic flood features are seen all over the planet. In fact, they're the most obvious. And so the earliest mapping of these things, first with the Viking orbiter and later ones, got people to think, you know, the only flow channels we see on the planet are these catastrophic flows. So maybe there never was steady-state flow of water on Mars. Maybe it all was just subsurface ice and just occasional melting. Maybe a meteor strike melts it locally, maybe a little volcanism, and then you get these big floods, and then it all flows back into the, wa into the rock, hydrates up, freezes out, and you're all over. So that maybe, maybe this whole idea about standing water on Mars never happened. But that changed a few years ago. Much better images were, images were flown on the last couple of missions, the Mars Global Surveyor and others, and began to get a really, really close look at the planet in great detail. Those big catastrophic flood structures are really big. They're easy to see. 
but it was really hard to see the subtle structures. This particular one is the one that really woke everyone up about two, three, about three years ago. It's called the Eberswalde Delta. It's actually found inside of Eberswalde Crater. What you see here is the beginnings of very clear meandering flow channels. In fact, you even see what looks like an oxbow there. And you see this fanning out. Think about satellite pictures of the Mississippi Delta or the edge where, it, where rivers coming out into a vast lake and you're beginning to deposit sediments down in these kind of alluvial fans, what's called a distribution flow. The fact that we're actually seeing meandering, we're actually seeing something that looks like a delta, this is a finally a sign that we're seeing, if you look carefully at Mars, of ancient steady state flows. We're seeing things where water was present and present for a long time and flowing liquid. So we're not talking about very rapid catastrophic floods. We're talking about steady state presence of liquid water on the surface of the planet. So that's the first line of evidence. Much more detailed observations are showing lots of gullies and erosion. We're seeing places which were very clearly carved out by the kinds of erosion that we see on the earth. You know, when I grew again, I grew up in a desert. There were lots of places where we had these places that in Spanish were called quebradas or washes, where you would see there wasn't standing water, there wasn't a river running then, but during the rainy season, in fact, you could get flash floods and things like that. And you would get these very clear flow channels season after season after season carving the gully out. So we begin to see these areas of water, rapid floods of water, like sort of flash floods carving gullies, but it's repeated episodes rather than these sudden bursts of the dam like in the Ravi Vallis. We also can see now with the higher resolution imaging the beginnings of seeing layered sedimentary terrain. We see things kind of stepped as if you're laying down a layer of sediment on top of a layer of sediment on top of a layer of sediment. And we can see this layering in, in the terrains. All of these are signs of steady state flows. We also can get an idea of when those flows occurred because there are impact craters over some of the structures. For example, you could uh, back up a little bit here to the picture of the Eberswalde Delta. You can see that impact crater right there on top of and obliterating part of the flow underneath. Knowing what the number of craters, the density of craters across here, lets us date when this flow probably occurred. And the answer comes in, most of them are quite old, a few hundred million years old at the youngest. Maybe some others, and it's very hotly contested, maybe as many as a few million years old on the planet. So this is the first really incontrovertible evidence that we've seen in the dry geology of Mars of past steady state liquid water flows. Carbon dioxide doesn't become a liquid. Carbon dioxide, when it melts, becomes a gas, it sublimates. Water on Mars, if I put a block of water out on Mars and let it simply heat up in the sunlight, it's going to turn into a, into a, into a uh, vapor. It's not going to turn into a little puddle of water. You're doing a homework problem along those lines. But the real evidence, the real kicker, came from the Mars Exploration rovers. They could get down right up close to the things. They could see structures on millimeter scales with their microscopic cameras. And what they saw was absolutely marvelous. Inside of some of these craters where you've torn up a section of the surface, you've excavated part of the surface of Mars that would normally be covered by sand. And you get up close inside the insides of these craters, and what do we see? But layered sedimentary rock. We see layer upon layer of sediment that have been laid down, not in a single episode, but year after year, century after century, just like we see the building up of sedimentary rock layers on the surface of the Earth. These are the presence not only of water-deposited sediments, but of long epochs of water deposition of sediments. 
The other thing we see beautiful down here, these look exactly like, in fact, these look, except for the fact there's no plant life around, this looks like the kind of mud sediments you see around an old desert quebrada. Exactly the sorts of thing you see laid down season after season, year after year of flooding. But what's even more interesting is when they looked in detail at the contents of the soil and they found places where the soil was slightly turned up by the wheels, for example, or dug into a little bit, and looked at the mineral content, what they found were, dissolved, were salts. Salts are concentrated by being dissolved in water and then evaporating the water away. So the only way you can get high concentrations of salt is by having standing water leaching those minerals out of the rock over many, many years. You don't get it in sudden floods. Sudden floods of fresh water stay, water for a long, stay fresh for a long time. Standing water, if you leave it in mineral-rich soils, becomes slowly brackish and salty. And then when the water evaporates, those highly concentrated dissolved salts precipitate out on the surface. And so what we see are minerals formed in the presence of standing liquid water. And the real kicker turned out to be the, de the, de the detection of hematite. Hematite is iron oxide formed in the presence of liquid water. So all of these evidences search and keep pointing and, and pointing incontrovertibly to the sign that there was not only liquid water on Mars in the past, but it was standing liquid water. To have standing liquid water on Mars, the air pressure has to be higher. Remember the, the homework problem with the phase diagram. At low pressures, water moves into a part of the phase diagram where the only two phases are solid and gas. So you've got to get above a certain critical pre pressure where you can have all three phases, solid, liquid, and gas, existing at a variety of temperatures. So when did this occur? Well, it certainly doesn't occur today because Mars has got a low-pressure, cold atmosphere. But if we go back in the past, Mars lost that atmosphere over time. It lost its magnetic field. It cooled off in the interior. So what happened? Well, we expect that Mars started out with a primordial atmosphere like the Earth and Venus. The composition of the atmosphere, mostly carbon dioxide, a bit of nitrogen, probably a lot of water, was probably the same as what we saw in the primordial atmospheres of Earth and Venus. But what happened? Greenhouse effect would kick in right away. Lots of greenhouse gases of carbon dioxide and water. You would probably even set up, with liquid water, set up something like a carbon dioxide cycle. There was volcanism on Mars, at least. So there was at least some mechanism for starting a carbon dioxide cycle of sorts, but not plate tectonism. We don't see any signs of plate tectonics. But you set something up where you can actually get the conditions warm enough that water can be a liquid. And Mars is just at the edge of the zone of solar heating that if you give it a little bit of help with the greenhouse effect, water, and the pressure's high enough, water can be liquid on the surface. However, Mars is small. It can't hold on to its atmosphere, and it began to lose its atmosphere. It lost it off into space and never really got a heavy enough atmosphere to keep that greenhouse effect going. As the greenhouse effect begins to weaken, the temperature on Mars drops. Mars is right at the outside of that zone of liquid water. As the greenhouse effect backs off, the global temperature begins to drop, and the water in the atmosphere begins to snow out and freeze into the rock. It basically freezes into water-saturated rocks, which we see those that water-saturated hydrated rocks today. As the water freezes out, you shut down your carbon dioxide cycle, and you begin to lose even more of your atmosphere. The remaining carbon and nitrogen, because it's a low gravity, begin to escape. As the planet solidifies, the magnetic field shuts down, and it gets exposed to the full blast of the solar wind, and the solar wind basically finishes the job that, that the weak gravity of Mars could barely even start. So you may have had a, a substantial atmosphere in the past, 
but it lost it over a couple of billion years. So the idea is that by the present day, the evolution of Mars's atmosphere has gone from a heavy, warm, wet, moist atmosphere where you could have liquid water with a substantial greenhouse effect, but lost that atmosphere when the center solidified and you lost the magnetic field, that loss accelerated. And we're left four and a half billion years later with a thin, cold, dry carbon dioxide and nitrogen atmosphere. There's no more liquid water because it's all basically sunk down into the rocks and frozen out because it got too cold for it. And then finally, the pressure drops to the point that water can no longer be liquid. It can only be either solid or gas. and only sublimates in the low pressure. New evidence that this, in fact, is where the water on Mars is. Where did all that water go? There's a huge amount of water that we thought was in the primordial atmosphere of the Earth, a huge amount of water in the primordial atmosphere of Venus. There's no reason to expect that Mars was any different. We're not going to see it on the surface. We're not going to see exposed ice because we've had a couple billion years of weathering and dust deposition. We see water ice at the poles, so we know there's water there. One of the ways you can look is you use what's called a gamma ray spectrometer. As gamma rays strike the surface of, of Mars, they're going to have interactions with water, with hydrogen atoms. And you can see the interaction of neutrons with hydrogen atoms to produce gamma rays that are going, cosmic rays coming in, cosmic ray neutrons, will give you a gamma ray signature. And you can map the surface of the planet. This was done with the Mars Odyssey spacecraft, carried a gamma ray spectrometer, where you have a lot of subsurface hydrogen atoms, which is going to be in water. That's where your hydrogen getters up the oxygen and forms water ice. You're going to get a large gamma ray signature. Where you don't have much water, where it's very dry, you're going to get a very small gamma ray scattering signature. And remember, the planet's getting bumped by gamma rays and cosmic rays from space all the time. So it's a way to map out the presence of the hydrogen composition. And since the hydrogen is associated with water ice, it maps the water ice. It gives us a global map and tells us where to dig. Well, not surprisingly, there's a ton of water up at the poles. The strongest signature, 64%, is what the subsurface water ice is up at the poles. Well, duh, that's where we see it today. That was expected. It was not expected was this, all the water at middle latitudes underneath the surface. That's where Mars's water went. It's frozen below the surface. So Mars probably had a substantial amount of water on its surface in standing water that sank down below the surface and froze solid. It's been covered up by billions of years of dust storms. And it's down there, frozen solid, waiting for us to dig in there and find it directly. But there's a lot of signs of low latitude ice on the planet. So all the lines of evidence are pointing to the fact that Mars may have been very warm and, in fact, may have been liquid water abundantly on the planet in the distant past. Here's a computer reconstruction of filling in those deep basins in the north with liquid standing water. And what the heck, let's Photoshop in some clouds as well. And someone got a little imaginative and threw in a little greenery. But it is not sufficient merely to have water, organics, and heat. Did they, in fact, get themselves together? And if in the past, did they form life, even primitive forms of life, like started within 100 million years of the formation of liquid oceans on our Earth? Is the life there in the past? Can we find its fossils? Is any of the life surviving below the surface? And those are the questions we'll pick up on Monday. <laughs>